0: this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Uh, welcome to this TSR podcast organized in collaboration with Global Thoracic Surgery Residents Association which is a new organization uniting different cardiothoracic resident associations and programs around the globe. My name is Mia Lehtinen and I'm a cardiothoracic surgery resident in Helsinki University Hospital in Finland. And the topic of this podcast is how cardiothoracic training looks like in other countries across the world. I have the honor of having here my two colleagues, Akash Yoshi from the Sri Chitra Institute of Medical Science from Trivandrum, India. And then Charles Jenkinson who works at the Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth, Australia. Akash and Charles actually both work also for the Cardiothoracic, uh, for the Global Thoracic Surgery Residence Association. Akash is there, the representative of Asian residents, and Charles is our deputy chair and i think we just dive directly into the questions that i had prepared for both of you i have worked together with trainees from all over europe and i know that pathways into becoming cardiac surgeon can differ basically enormously from one country to another even when it's when it comes to just neighboring countries so you can just imagine how much things differ uh, on different continents that's why we will start with the basics I would like to know by both of you, how was your pathway into a cardiothoracic training program? How was the application process in your country? Charles, would you like to start?
1: Yes, thank you, Mia. And it's an absolute pleasure to come along and talk to everyone in this very global audience. So I decided I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon when I was about 14 in high school. My father was a country vet in the rural areas of Western Australia and I was watching him operate on cats and dogs from about the time I was five years old. I remember being young and my mother lifting me up onto her hip and holding me so that I could see inside what dad was doing and it was often abdominal surgery or you know, sterilizations, but that really set me down a path of, I want to be a surgeon. So in Australia, at the time, it's a little bit different now, but at the time when I finished high school, generally speaking, most doctors went direct into a Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery pathway through a university. These days, it's evolved a little to emphasize more postgraduate medicine, which I guess would be similar to many of of your listeners around the world. So I undertook a six-year Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery at the University of Western Australia. From there, specialist training in surgery in Australia is not streamlined. So most people will undertake sometimes just a couple of years and other times many more years of what we call pre-vocational training. So you'll do your internship, you'll then become a resident and borrowing from the british system you then become a registrar you can become a registrar in a field that you're not necessarily training in so for instance when i was three years out of university i took my first job as a cardiothoracic surgery registrar and that's when you start to learn the basics so you learn conduit harvesting you learn of course all of the assessments of the patients preoperatively and post-operatively and in the emergency setting and also your procedural skills, so putting in chest drains and the like. From there, you more or less then race to get through your resume and forming a CV to the point where you can apply. This on average from the time of graduation of an Australian doctor or Australia or Aotearoa New Zealand because the systems are very similar and in actual fact, we share the same specialist college, on average take about six and a half to seven and a half years of doing courses, completing research, gaining referees who will support us onto the training program. And I was very much in the middle of that pack. I was admitted to training when I was six years through what we call our postgraduate year. So I was postgraduate year six when I first got onto training. So that then means that you make an application You give the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons all of your details and you pay a fee. And if you're fortunate enough, you'll be asked for an interview. Most people, myself included, take a couple of attempts to get onto the training program. So I was unsuccessful on my first attempt and then successful on my second. And then after that, you become what we call an accredited trainee. So our training program goes for six years. And, of course, there are some examinations along the way. So, at the very start, before you get onto the training program, you have to sit the general examination or the the general surgical sciences examination. And that's the same across all specialties in surgery. Then you also have to sit a clinical examination, which is an OSCE style clinical, you know, examine patients, take histories, describe procedures type examination. A couple of years into training, you'll then undertake a specialty-specific examination, which examines your knowledge of the basic sciences of cardiothoracic surgery. And then after that, you'll pass your anatomy viva. At the end of your training program, as you're getting towards consultant practice, you'll then front for your fellowship examination. So that's an exam that I just recently completed. I was successful in my fellowship exam in May of this year 2022 and that consists of a written component of modified essay questions as well as an operative viva so across the cardiac and thoracic surgery training processes i should note that in australia we do divide our training into cardiac and thoracic surgery as a whole so we all train in both cardiac and thoracic surgery there's no particular Sort of division, as you might see in the U.S. or in other places, where you train as a cardiac or a thoracic surgeon, um, we we do train in both, and you know that's that means that your training units that you might be sent to, some of them have more of a thoracic exposure, others are more geared towards cardiac. But at the end of the day, you come out trained in both. Just before I hand over to Akash, what I will say is that our training program is binational, so Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. So for instance, I started my training in Perth and then I completed my training in New South Wales, in Sydney. I did the last couple of years of my training and also some fellowship training at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney with a focus on cardiac and and, and lung transplantation. So people often move around. And the one statistic that I often give to people is that when you have a look at the geography of Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand, when you take Perth in the west coast or the southwest of Australia, and then go to Hamilton in New Zealand, where we have our two farthest space trainees, the distance between those people is actually further than the distance from New York to London. So our trainees are spread over a great geographical distance and across a lot of different hospitals, and you could be potentially sent to any one of those hospitals in either country throughout your training program.
0: That sounds super interesting. Um, I have a couple of questions before we continue with uh, Akash. Uh, I was curious about the exams. Are those like national exams that people take at the same time, go to one place and take the exams? the same day or, or are the exams organized by the local regional hospital or university or something like that?
1: They're all organized by the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, so they are the standard setters of the exam. Now our surgical college is responsible for the training of all surgeons in Australia essentially across nine surgical specialties so the examinations are timed to coincide most of them twice or three times a year now the exams that the the written exams essentially so the gsse the 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 part one exam as we used to call it the specialty specific exam and the viva written so the ones where you can answer on a computer they may be multi-choice they may have short answer components or they may be modified questions they're sat on the same day at the same time across both countries uh they they just have various centers that hold the exams at at exactly the same time so you're all sitting down in rooms just spanned from the difference between new york and london so you're all sitting at the same time the exams where you have to front up and be examined by people in real life they're generally centralized. So everyone will travel to Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or, or Wellington or, or Auckland or, or, or somewhere within those countries and everyone will come to those exams at the same time.
0: Exactly. And I was wondering, do, do you have, happen to have any idea how many training programs there are? Like how many, how many hospitals or how many units are actually training cardiothoracic surgeons?
1: so across both countries we have 40 trainees and most centers only have one cardiothoracic surgery trainee those centers may if we look at pump cases as a as a metric for instance the smallest units will generally do about 300 pump cases a year the largest pump uh, the largest unit in that cohort will do about 1500 pump cases in a year So Australia does, and also Aotearoa, New Zealand, does have a dispersion in the the size of the units and how busy they are. In saying that, there are some units with two trainees. So when I was at St. Vincent's, for instance, I was also with one other trainee. All in all, there are around about 35 units across both countries that train cardiothoracic surgeons.
0: Interesting, Uh, I'm now really curious to hear about Akash's experience uh, in getting into his cardiothoracic training program. Um, As you all know, India is quite a lot of bigger country than many of anyone else's countries, basically. So how was the application process there, Akash?
2: Hi, uh, first of all, uh, it's my pleasure and an honor to be on this podcast with you all, uh, with my two super talented colleagues and a wonderful human beings. Uh, First of all, in India, uh, it starts with uh, uh, there are two boards actually, which National Boards of uh, Education that conducts almost all the exams uh, for the for the uh, medical sciences. So starting with the Bachelor of Medicine mm-hmm. and Surgery, which consists of four and uh, four and a half years of uh, Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery. Uh, post that you will have to work one year as an internship or uh, we can call it the housemanship, and post. Uh, housemanship. We have to compulsory do a three years of general residency, general surgery residency. So that is that we call it a specialty. And uh, post specialty, they you need to work for another three years of residency. That that comes as super specialty. What we call it MCH here. And uh, that that includes all cardiac surgery and all the super specialty subjects like cardiac, nephro, uro, or hepato, you know, onco, whatever. So that comes post three years of. Uh, general surgery residency but nowadays we also have some uh, some subjects where the uh, government has allowed to issue direct six years of super specialty, skipping those three years of general surgery also included in the directly super specialty courses like you can just offer six years of uh, cardiac surgery right from the starting skipping the general surgical part and uh, uh, all those exams are conducted by nbe which is the national board of Ex- examinations uh, maybe we might have around some uh, more than ten thousand applicants uh, for one particular subject, and about the Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery, maybe around applicants are more than some 90,000. So it's like a very tough competition to get into first MBBS, that is like Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery. Post that MS is even more tougher, and for M- specialty the number of applicants will come down, but the, the number of centers are also will will be on the decreasing trend. 10. And the resident residency, like the work trend-wise, will be like first years you usually be doing the ICU, you get used to the ICU OPD and most of that setup of the work in the first years, like, and maybe you can harvest the venous graph for the coronary artery bypass. year, you will start doing the going on pump. Mostly in India, almost all the centers go prefer going on pump and doing the surgeries. So second year's we we'll often get a chance to do the prelim harvesting you know on, on, all the cases followed by going on uh, cannulation and finally, as usual, you will get to start doing some valves maybe a mitral valve aortic valve some proximal anastomosis and even feel lucky enough you can even get to do some distal anastomosis so that's like like that is like complete spectrum of uh, training that's how it goes in india that icd drainage and all that will be like uh, done in housemanship so like that that is when you when you enter the super specialty di- is. It is considered that you have you know all these things like there won't be any teaching of putting ICD tube or putting a central line or putting a fibril line. When like it is understood that you know all these things, like So you'll likely be taken to the theater. Okay, you can harvest the vein, and that. So that's like the spectrum of the uh, teaching here.
0: Do you also do both cardiac and thoracic uh, in your training yeah. program?
2: Yeah, we have cardiac, thoracic, vascular. All the, all the three uh, spectrum we most of the centers.
0: And how many trainees are there in your your institute at the same time? In my institute, like India,
2: we have one is the NB, what I told, that constitute that will conduct exams for almost 90% of the centers. But in India, we have some four to five centers that is like considered as an institute of national importance. So that is like specially recognized by the government of India. So like there is an all India Institute of Medical Science, one is chipmer one is Dimhans, mm-hmm. and one is Chichitra. So like four to five, one is PGI. So five, six centers are like specially recognized by the government of India and they have been labeled at an Institute of National Importance. So the exam for those institutes are taken separately not, not for the North National Board exam. So in my centers, like we have every four four eligible seats every year. Right now we are 12 of them, 12 residents right, working in the unit.
0: Sounds great. Now I'm actually curious to hear then what is your typical work week like? Um, how do you divide the tasks between the different re- residents and what kind of job you do, usually do during one oh,
2: week? residency, my setup is like really tough. I'll tell you, the first job is to get up at three o'clock. Okay, we have access to be taken morning at four o'clock in the morning, right in the morning for all the patients. So before access to be taken, the first chair will come and remove the drains. So then immediately access is taken. So his work starts right away from the 3 o'clock. four o'clock. By 4 o'clock, he'll remove all the drains, ICD drains, start doing dressings. So he will finish the dressings by around 6 o'clock. So there will be around 50-60 patients in the ward and ICU and like that. So he has to do dressings of all the patients. So that will come out up to 6 o'clock. And 6 o'clock, all the consultants and everything will start coming for the rounds. He has to give rounds to everyone. And 8 o'clock, the theater will start. So second year will by 7 o'clock, second year will come. We will supervise the first year work and start taking a brief rounds so that he can uh, everything is normalised before the consultant round. And then we will finally come and take a brief supervising second year. like every, every everything is like stepwise. First, second year monitor by monitor first year. Finally, we will second year. And like by eight o'clock, everybody will go into theatre. Second, mostly second year and third year will go to theatre. First year will go to OPD and manage the OPD. Second year and finally we will go to theater. So by the time uh, we have like. In my centers, usually we post around six to seven cases per day. So we finish theaters by around eight o'clock, nine o'clock. There are 12 hours of theater. Post that, we will have to monitor the post-operative patients, uh, every day, uh, today's post-operative patients. And that will be around like 11 o'clock in the night. So you see, then you go down, see your tomorrow's patient, and then you go home, have your dinner, and then (laughs) the day can, the, the routine starts.
0: Wow, so 3 a.m. the first people come to work, the first trainees. Yeah. Yeah. And they will stay until 9 p.m. also?
2: Uh, they will stay, like uh, usually if they are on duty, they will continue the work and they will be allowed to sleep from 12 to 3. If they are not on duty, then they will go home by around 11 o'clock.
0: Excellent. How about uh, Australia and New Zealand, Charles?
1: I think we're a little friendlier on people's circadian rhythms than that sounding episode in saying that it varies so much between centers. And certainly when I was working at St. Vincent's in the heart, lung transplant job and doing organ retrievals, all sorts of hours of the day, uh, my, my hours of work were certainly much more. In saying that, well, certainly not as much as Akash's working each day, but uh, more than they are now. The centre I'm at at the moment, Sir Charles Gardner, is probably around about average in terms of working hours. Generally speaking, the day will start at around about seven o'clock and we'll come in for our ward round. And usually the first patient will be ready in theatre from about 8 or 8.15. You'll be called down to put in the catheter. In saying that, we usually have a trainee, we usually have a fellow on the team, and um, again, following the British system, we usually have a registrar, which is the, the North American or, or European equivalent of a resident. Uh, so a registrar who will be there, who's who's in that pre-vocational phase of their training. So for instance, when I was the, the trainee at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital, I'm, I'm currently there in a fellow role, so my role's a bit different, but When I was there as the cardiothoracic trainee, I would lead the round and you would usually be rounding on depending on what your load was like, 20 to 30 people, sometimes a few more in a unit that does 300, 350 pump cases a year. In bigger units, you might have 40, 60, 80 patients to round on, but then you would usually split it up into inpatient teams to spread the load a bit. You would aim to have the ward round done in about an hour to an hour and a half. You'd be down to theatre and then you'd do the first case of the day. And that would go from nine to midday or thereabouts. Um, then you would duck up to the ward, make sure that you were fed and watered, because we are humans after all and we exhibit human physiology. And then you'd duck down for the second case, which would usually start at around about 1 or 1.30 to 2 p.m., then finishing about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. After that, there's usually some consults to see, and often, again, using the principle of dividing and conquering, the the registrar on the team or maybe someone who was out of theatre would already have seen that consult and would be ready to, to show you the case, and then you would have to call your consultant, your attending surgeon, and let them know that there was a referral. Uh You would then go down, check on the patients in ICU, mop up any of your non-clinical work. And then most of the time during my training, I would have got home between 7 and 8 p.m. or thereabouts. So usually working around about a 10 to a 12 hour day, sometimes a little bit more. We'd have outpatient clinics peppered through the week, generally speaking you'll be assigned to a particular consultant surgeons clinic and that will be your day when it will be your responsibility to be out of theater and and attending that particular clinic. That often really nicely lines up with the supervisor of training who might have a special interest in, in clinical teaching. So they'll get you to see the new patients as well and then present them and, and do some practice for your exams. We then have an on-call roster system. In Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand, most of the ICUs are run by specialist intensive care physicians. There are still some around where the post-operative patients are managed by either the surgeons or cardiac anaesthetists slash anaesthesiologists, depending on, on your country of origin and uh, what you call them. Um, so we often don't have to be on site for the post-operative patients as long as you live close enough by to be in there within a reasonable amount of time you can go home and that's been a real push and certainly when i was involved with the RACS trainees association a real push to try and make sure that in the accreditation of surgical trainees uh, that when they have sites the sites actually take care of them and They take care of their well-being as humans, and I I guess that this isn't really the scope of this podcast, Mia, and maybe we'll have to talk about it some other time, Um, but taking care of each other, including working some of these horrendous hours that we seem to do almost as a rite of passage, but arguably contribute very little to patient care we really need to be looking hard and saying, is there a better way to do this? But I do apologize because if I carry on, I will hijack the podcast. So I might throw back to you and um, we'll talk about that another day, perhaps.
0: Absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, coming from from the continent where work-life balance is like a super hot topic, I can tell you that uh, in most countries, actually in Europe, I think the work hours are pretty much the same as you are describing how it's in uh, in Australia. So two cases per day coming in maybe around 7 a.m., 7.30, something like that, and then finishing maybe at 6 uh, p.m. or so. Um, I have the luxury of coming from the European, uh, Northern European countries. So the Nordic countries where the work-life balance is even bigger things. so. Um, don't get <laughs> too astonished when I say my work hours are usually around eight hours per day. We start at eight o'clock. We have only one on-pump case usually per day, maximum two on some of the days of the week. And then we are usually finished by uh with the case maybe around one or two p.m. and then do some paperwork for the last one or two hours so that we will be finished around 3.30 or 4 p.m. Ready to go home. The only one who stays behind at the hospital is is the the one person who is on a call. So we always have someone in-house, one surgeon, who will then take care of all of the patients, not just his or hers, but everyone's patients. But yeah, this differs tremendously.
1: Look, and I think this harps back to if you have a look at what we consider to be the core surgical competencies in Australia and Aotearoa and New Zealand, RACS has a set of 10 surgical competencies, and a very important one is collaboration and teamwork. I think that we are almost hardwired, and again, by tradition, forged to believe that we are it. We are the last line of defense. We are the last bastion of hope for our patients. But the reality is we can achieve so much more and we can make this career path so much more worthwhile by looking after each other and giving each other the time and the space to not only be excellent surgeons, but be excellent in their family lives. And I'm a parent to two wonderful girls. I have Cora and Georgia, Cora's just turned eight, Georgia's about to turn four. And the one thing that I can say is that being a better parent, being a better husband or spouse, to me, that also makes me a better doctor. And the better surgeon I am, makes me better at my roles at home. And I think that we need to consider that when we have a look at workforce planning and workforce structure if you want to get the best from people, you have to enable them to work as teams and work collaboratively and to have this mutual sense of we're all in this together. And maybe to some people that sounds strange. Maybe it sounds like a foreign concept. And if you had asked me 10 years ago when I was first embarking on this journey, I would have absolutely agreed with you. I said, well, that's not the way we do things. That's not how you be a a cardiac surgeon. You have to be it. You have to be the... You know, the the number one, but as I guess I've matured in the profession and seen different ways of doing things, I've come to realize that there's there's more than one way of doing things and each way has their pros and their cons and that's a discussion again, we can have some other time and on another podcast with a different topic. But I think it's so important that we all look out for each other and we treat each other with respect. And that's not just other surgeons, it's also everyone else. I mean, heaven forbid how life can be made so much more difficult when friction's created with people going right the way, you know, through the, the vertical hierarchies and the various support systems and, and ways that a hospital operates if you're working as a team and if you're treating each other with respect and, and aiming to be there for each other, I think that's when you, you get the best results.
0: I couldn't agree more. Definitely. Uh, I don't know. It would be interesting to see a study where people compare these work hours with the, the very famous happiest nation. because <laughs> coincidentally it has been voted by, I guess the, um, people influence themselves as the happiest nation in the world many times. Uh, I don't know, maybe it has, has something to do with the work hours, and um, well, I guess that also makes us stay in, in one position in, in the same hospital for a long time. I don't know how it's in Australia and New Zealand uh, with the job market, but For example, for us, uh, if we get the position as a trainee in a hospital, it's quite guaranteed that they will keep you afterwards as well when you become a consultant, when you become an attending, whichever word you want to use for it. So once you are in as a trainee, you will then stay for a long time and they will take good care of you. How does it work in in Australia and New Zealand? Do you you travel a lot, like seeking for employment or do you stay in one place?
1: You certainly do travel a lot more than that. If you have a look at the average pathway of a trainee in cardiothoracic surgery, the absolute minimum number of units you could work in before entering consultant practice would be a minimum of three. Now, that would be on the assumption that you finished medical school. You did your internship and residency at a single unit you then got on to training and you then have six years where the maximum time you can spend in any one unit is two years. So if you spend two years at the unit that you're an intern and a resident at, you still have another four years of training at which time you have to spend a maximum of two years in the same unit. So three units across six years of training is the minimum that you could you know, that you could possibly accomplish. And I think this has some real benefits. And if, if I can indulge you with an anecdote, I was doing a case today and it was a you know, simple cabbage, normal ventricle, nice case. It was one of those ones that you go into theater and think, okay, no worries, I've got this. Now I was doing the case and it all went very straightforward, knock on wood, because the patient's still in ICU and is hopefully about to be extubated. So I shouldn't jinx myself too much. But afterwards, I was sitting down with my consultant and um, we were just talking about the case and how things were going. And he said to me, I noticed that you do all of your anastomosis the exact opposite way that I do. And if you would got me a year ago, I probably would have tried to emulate his technique to the absolute precise level of detail. Um, but, you know, having come back and past my exam. I'm sort of getting towards the stage where the bosses are letting me do anastomoses in the direction that I want to do them. And he said to me, oh, if you do it my way, you're on the forehand on the last bit of your, you know, on the last couple of stitches. And, you know, that means you might see a little bit better and you can hold it up, you know, there. And he said, so why is it you do it this way? And I said, oh, well, this is the way that I was taught to do it when I was at St. Vincent's. And when I was sitting my exam, I actually sat down and thought long and hard, what are the advantages and disadvantages of each of these techniques? And I thought, well, if you do it this way, then it's probably easier if you're doing sequential grafts and you're trading off this for that. And uh, we had that discussion and I could tell that he thought, oh yeah, well, it's not just that he's copied someone and not thought about it. This is actually a very well planned endeavor and this is what this is what he's doing and you know to be honest I started out doing my LIMA to LAD anastomosis exactly the same way he does it the beautiful thing though about working not only with different surgeons but at a number of different centers is you get to add tools to your toolbox to your armamentarium that says you know when a coronary vessel looks a little bit different or maybe your exposure isn't good you may want to trade off one thing for another, and it means that you have an extra technique that you can then throw at that particular situation. And that can only be good for the patient. For me, and again, this is going back into my own personal anecdote, moving to Sydney was quite difficult. To get from Sydney to Perth is around about a four to a four and a half hour flight. So it's actually easier to go from Perth to Singapore than it is to fly from Perth to Sydney. And given that both of my daughters were established, well, my oldest at school and my youngest at that stage in daycare, she's since now at the same school. And also my wife, Claire, is a professional and uh, she works in the mining and resources sector and has really, in the last few years, started to kick as many goals in her career as I've been kicking in mine we decided that we would be the, the quintessential fly-in, fly-out family. That's a, a piece of Australian slang for those who work in the mining industry. We call them a FIFO. So many of our working population work away from the city, and they'll live in the city but then fly into work and then fly home after they finish, generally speaking, at weeks at a time. And we decided that we would do that just across the other side of the country. And that's not a problem. We thought that will be perfect. And then coronavirus hit. So when coronavirus hit, Australia and also Aotearoa New Zealand more or less closed themselves off from the rest of the world. And they even went one step further. And most of the states at various times and for very protracted periods of time also shut their internal borders. So for most of the last two years when I was working at St. Vincent's in Sydney, I was unable to fly home and, and see my family. And certainly the toll that that took on my oldest daughter, Cora, is, is, is quite palpable, and I, I, I still see it. And again, this is maybe one of the reasons why my passion for you know, good, safe, supported working conditions flourished even more than it was back before I moved to Sydney was because I've seen the effects that moving around can have on families. There are many families who do choose to move long distances together. And, for instance, at the moment I'm working with a, with a trainee, Joshua Debono, and I hope that Joshua's listening. Um, he, he's come across with uh, his wife and his son and, you know, that's that's wonderful in terms of their ability to, to remain together. But it's also not a free pass. I mean, it comes at an effect to everything. It, it means that they lose their support network as they move 3,000 kilometers. You know, that's, oh, goodness me, that's uh, 1,800 miles, for instance, for our North American listeners, to, to follow their, their partners or, you know, their... Their, their parents' goals and dreams. And, and, and that has an effect on any everyone. So on one hand, it is really good and uh, to, to be able to go to different centers and pick up new ways, but it also does come with a cost.
0: Definitely. Um, I've also had the luxury of visiting some, some centers in Europe and we'll probably continue doing that at some point because it definitely does give you a lot of perspective for your daily life. But yes, you, you have to consider carefully with your family and, and your loved ones. What is the cost that you will pay for going long distance for work? What is more important for you and your family then? Um, I think our time is starting to uh get closer to its end uh i i warmly thank both charles and akash for this really interesting uh discussion about global perspective on training cardiothoracic surgery and what kind of different pathways it can take Um, i hope um the best success for both of you in your career and um regarding what we just talked about please take good care of yourselves. Thank
2: you so much.